Critical race theory. Critical race theory is not a theory. Each side kind of wants to pick the way that it defines its terms. Critical race theory. Public schools are turning students into activists. Toxic. Critical race theory. Let's stop running away from the conversation. Let's not ignore, you know, um, that racial realities, racial disparities exist. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The Debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Welcome to The Debrief. I'm your host, Adam Cooperstein, and today we're going to talk about three words that inspire passion the second they are uttered. Critical race theory, CRT. It's something you've probably heard a lot about recently, and until the last year or so, wasn't discussed so much in the mainstream, but it's been a theory in academia for a long time. So we want to understand what is critical race theory, how is it being applied in schools in the tri-state and across the country, and why are there bills in state legislatures across the country right now trying to ban it? We're going to hear from the opposition, but let's, let's start first with Dr. David Kirkland, a proponent. He's the executive director at NYU Metro Center And Dr. Kirkland, thank you so much for your time. I know you work directly with schools on critical race theory. Let's start with the most important question. What is it? First, let me say, you know, um, that we work directly with schools using critical race theory, but we've never worked with schools to teach, you know, critical race theory. There's scant evidence that critical race theory is being taught, you know, widely in K-12 public schools. And I think it's important to start there, right? So what is critical race theory? To start, critical race theory is not a theory, but a series of concepts and ideas that developed and and have been debated for the past half century with aspirations of explaining the enduring, shape-shifting, and complex behaviors of race and racism in the United States, right? It helps us to understand and understand deeply why in every institution that we have in this country, we have racial disparity. Right. We have those who are racially vulnerable, you know, not necessarily getting getting the benefit, you know, um, of those institutions. And the question is, how can critical race theory as an apparatus, as a tool, as a lens, help us to understand structural problems so that we can search for structural solutions? So what you just said, I would say there's there's always somebody that disagrees with everything. But I'd say the majority of Americans would hear what you said and say, okay, you know, I can get behind that concept. That is important to discuss. Where do we run into the problem where there's a flashpoint in America? It's a it's a culture war right now over race, critical race theory. Where, where do you think that, where is that happening? So psychologists talk about this thing they call it the racial paradox. And the racial paradox is the idea that the majority of whites believe that race is not a problem in this country. The majority of Black and Latinx people believe that race continues to be a problem in the country, and the evidence bears it out. Race and questions and conversations of race raise anxieties of those people who are racially privileged, right? It raises the anxieties of white people. But unless we begin to tackle, confront, you know, on the question of race, we cannot move our American democracy forward. And the stance that we take at NYU Metro Center, let's stop running away from the conversation. Let's not ignore, you know, um, that racial realities, racial disparities exist. Let's acknowledge that they exist and let's figure out why they exist so that we can begin to create solutions for everyone. The second thing that I'll say about that anxiety 
um, the, the movement around thinking about solutions, structural solutions to educational questions that involve race is not about making one group feel less. It's about pulling us all up. It's about considering and thinking about the various ways that we need to design, create, promote an education system that can work for you as well as me. Discomfort, like you mentioned, that anxiety, that can be good in progress. But making someone feel inferior, which you just mentioned, is not what you want to do, or what, not what, you, what critical race theory intends to do. Um, in practice, are there examples that you think are legitimate, where there's, there's arguments to be made, that, that in practice, it has been taken too far? Well, I can't, I can't say in terms of critical race theory itself. Um, I'm certain that there are some people, some trainers, you know, um, who are not well versed in how to use, utilize theory, concepts, evidence that critical race theory allows us to, you know, um, use in order to do work. But, but let me just say that we, we can go into any field or we can go into any practice and we can find individuals who do not practice it well. We can find doctors who do not do a good job. That doesn't mean, does not mean that we should condemn medicine. So you can go into any field and find individuals who are not good at what they do. But for the most part, critical race theory has been a useful tool for scholars and individuals seeking to understand the complex problems, you know, um, of race within the United States in order for us to resolve those problems. Are there other examples? You're, you're an educator, and I'm trying to think back uh, a parallel, perhaps, to a change in the educational system that was met with such opposition that that later maybe became more widely accepted because, you know, people are just inherently against change. Well, people are more inherently against change and particularly change when it relates to the question in a conversation of race because of our racial anxieties, the paradox of race within American society. We can point to many cases. One big case that we can point to is the issue of segregation within the country. You know, which is a continuing narrative, but it is a narrative that, you know, eventually many Americans begin to get behind. In 1955, I mean, 1954, excuse me, when Brown versus Board of Education was decided, the majority of white Americans in the United States believed that segregated schools was a good thing. We've come to a point in American history where the majority of Americans, regardless of race, believe that integrated schools is a good thing. So there are these tipping points. There are these points where when we confront the messy issues of race within our country, we can get to the other side. What do you say to the argument? I've, I've read this, that um, teaching CRT, uh, teaching specific students the, the claim that some students are told that they're inferior is actually in itself a civil rights violation. That, that's been at the heart of some of these bills that are trying to make their way through state legislatures. Yeah, narratives of inferiority have been taught in our schools for a long time. Um, can, I mean, they, we, we, we've taught that certain groups in so many ways are inferior. So if, for instance, if you take some of the linguistic arguments that came out of California or even some of the linguistic bans, you know, um, that we've seen in places like Arizona, we've talked about the teaching of inferior languages, you know, um, inferior home languages. I've always said that we should never teach any group is inferior. And critical race theory doesn't teach anyone to teach that any group is inferior. That's antithetical to critical race theory, it's antithetical to equity in education. Equity in education is a, is a principle of fairness that's based on the recognition that 
all students are different and should be, you know, considered or treated differently in order for them to aspire to the best that's in education. It's not an inferiority concept. It's more of a targeted universal concept. How can we begin to design educational situations to meet the needs of each individual student? Do you, your, your goal as an educator is progress and knowledge. Do you think that this debate, are you fearful that it will get in the way of that progress or do you think it's just going to be a part of the process? Well, I think, I think that this debate is not helpful for our country. Last summer, um, we were making progress um, after the murder of George Floyd, as well as a string of other events. I, I need to mention Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. You know, people were recognizing that structural racism in the United States exists, that there were disparities. COVID taught us that structural you know, um, bias actually exists. And when we talk about structural racism, we're not saying that there is some evil, um, capricious, pernicious person in the background of society pulling a lever so that wrong things can happen to particular people. We are simply saying that the outcomes within a social situation, the outcomes within society based on institutions are skewed. The privilege some, you know, um, and disadvantage others on the basis of race. And the question is, once we understand how those things are skewed, can we redesign and reformat society so that it advantages all individuals that it serves? You know, I, I, the word critical in critical race theory is interesting to me because it has, it can take on so many different meanings. In the sense of CRT, how should we think of critical as in criticism or critical in the sense that this is critically important. Right, and so the critical and critical race theory is more about importance. It's more about the recognition of importance, the recognition of the fundamental need to have a conversation of race, not you know, dispute that you know, conversation about race. Critical and critical race theory is not about criticism necessarily. You know, um, or critique necessarily. It's more about the importance of conversation, the importance of issue, the importance of theme within a particular domain. One one thing that uh, I I was thinking about that might be worth just mentioning with with the audience who might not be so familiar with critical race theory, and a lot of what you said today is enlightening, because I think the idea of of racism or race playing a role. When I was growing up, I, I think a lot of white people, for instance, were introduced to this as, well, racism is people who, you don't like black people. That, you know, I'm Jewish. Anti-Semitism, I, you don't like Jewish people. But I understand as a Jewish person that it's much more uh, complicated than that. And you could not be, you could be anti-Semitic without not simply, dis, without just disliking Jewish people. Is that a simple, basic part of this that I think we have to take a step beyond just to get to the point of understanding how we had to have this discussion? Yeah, I, I think that's the, the, the most important part of critical race theory. It, it, debunk, it debunks the idea that race and racism are simplistic. Right. It, it, it's more than I call it the nine eyes of racism. Right. You have interpersonal racism, the type of racism that you're talking about. You know, one individual against another individual. That's the probably the most visible form of racism, but it's not the most salient form of racism. You also have internalized racism. You have institutionalized racism, ideological racism, icon, iconographical racism, invisible racism, intersectional racism, international racism. And this is the complexity of race. And that's what critical race theory is saying is that there is a complex conversation that's not about a good guy or a bad guy. In fact, the binary does not help anybody. 
There's a complex conversation about how society works. And if we understand how society works, we have more power to control its outcomes. Dr. Kirkland, this has been enlightening. We really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now let's welcome in Max Eden. He is a research fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Max, you focus on education, education reform in K through 12. So you're really the perfect guest to help us get the other side of this conversation on critical race theory. Let's start. Thank you again for the time. What, in your view, is critical race theory? Because it seems like there's all sorts of different views just on the definition. Yes, no, that we've definitely reached a stage in the public debate where uh, each side kind of wants to pick the way that it defines its terms and, and paint the other side into a corner. <laughs> uh, the way that I define critical race theory is the way that critical race theorist Richard Delgado defined it himself in a book called Critical Race Theory and Introduction. I'll just read two sentences from that that I think get to the key of it. Uh, the critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars interested in studying and transforming the relationship among race, racism, and power. Unlike traditional civil rights uh, discourse, which embraces incrementalism, step-by-step -step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and the neutral principles of constitutional law. So to take a step back and editorialize a little bit, what I hear from how critical race theory defines itself is it is both a, a movement of scholars and activists, both an ideology and a political mission that sees itself as being uh, at best questioning or at worst in opposition to some of the basic elements of American society. And I think that's what has parents so concerned is that this kind of ideology, this movement, uh, this lens, as it's frequently called, is being applied in a way wherein public schools are turning students into activists and turning students into uh, individuals who see their role as to affect political change in opposition many times to society around them and even the families in their own homes. Like with any movement that evolves, uh, it isn't just one thing. And, yeah. and our first guest, when I asked him that same question, the way he described his view, what critical race theory is, um, was more of the second part of what you said, which is, you know, helping us understand historic racism and how the structural problems exist so that we can find solutions and structural solutions, essentially. So are there applications of critical race theory in today's America that you think are appropriate? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on the context, right? I mean, there are some articles that are written by critical race theorists, things that are covered, points that are made that are interesting and salient and should be studied and to some degree should be taught, right? I mean, one key thing that critical race theorists bring up all the time, which I think is a, a great bit of intellectual archaeology scholarship, is the legacy of redlining on housing patterns and from then all sorts of societal inequities, right? Um, but I think that when folks define that as the crux of critical race theory, they're at the very least missing kind of what parents are concerned about, right? What parents are concerned about and what these laws that we've seen being introduced in state legislatures target are pedagogical practices that are obviously inherently discriminatory, right? The text of these laws that are passing through various state legislatures say that the school shall not either, you know, introduce as concepts or teach as true 
things like one race is inherently superior or inferior to another, things like an individual is either guilty or innocent, oppressed or an oppressor based on their race. And most of the laws that have been you know, styled critical race theory bans, they don't, they don't say anything resembling uh, the kind of scholarship that I just mentioned, some of the scholarship that uh, Dr. Kirtland has done. They don't say, don't teach these facts, don't teach these scholarly interpretations. They do say, though, don't apply practices and pedagogical methodologies that are kind of obviously discriminatory in the classroom. And frankly, be a little bit careful about how far you take these arguments in the classroom, right? There's there's a way in which these arguments can go too far too fast. And this is one thing that I think parents are very concerned about. Max, do you worry at all that some of those laws could discourage authentic, open discourse about racism in schools that just could be important so that we can address some of the uncomfortable realities in America today? Yeah, I've, I've studied the laws pretty closely, and I think some are far better written than others. There are some laws that have been introduced that I think do run that risk of being read to uh, limit discourse in a way that's counterproductive. And frankly, I think perhaps not intended by the legislators, but you know, sometimes an ex excesses can occur. Uh, most of the laws that have been passed, however, to my mind, and as I've written, fall more into the category of simply enforcing the Civil Rights Act equally, regardless of race. A lot of what parents are really concerned about is not what Dr. Kirtland is speaking about when it comes to ways to study the past to inform the present. They're worried about schools teaching as fact that uh, students have a duty to disrupt and dismantle whiteness, right? As a using race as a moral category, putting really socially charged loads into it. It's the kind of thing that it, it's obviously illegal. It should be obviously illegal to most people if the race is switched, right? If, if you had teachers saying that uh, our role is to abolish and dismantle and disrupt blackness, the civil rights apparatus of the Department of Education would come down like a ton of bricks. And what I think most of these laws get to, and again, not all, there are some that are not written well, and I'm going to call those out in writing in time to come, but I think most of them fall more into enforcing the Civil Rights Act so as to not create a racially hostile environment in the classroom for students of any race. Do you, do you think the parents, uh, I think even Dr. Kirkland said this uh, earlier in our podcast, that he, he, he understands if, peer, if parents are worried about a student being felt, being taught to feel inferior. That is not the intent, he says, of critical race theory. I understand, and I think most people would, why that would be a problem. But do you think that some of the complaints from parents in actuality are just anxieties about facing uncomfortable truths about privilege and race in America? Uh, I think the root of the anxiety stems more from the kind of definition of critical race theory that I gave earlier as being something that conceives itself in opposition to commonly agreed upon elements of American society and of our civilization and a family life, right? You will see kind of under the umbrella of critical race theory, this call to disrupt and dismantle the quote unquote Western prescribed nuclear family. And so what you're really seeing, I think is less, you know, parents worried about their kids being confronted with uncomfortable historical facts and more parents worried that their schools have made it a mission to kind of subvert the values of their families and to try to groom them up to be activists along a kind of particular political mold. 
So you don't subscribe to the, 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 the claim that the examples that we've seen here in Manhattan, of course, with uh, a teacher, Paul Rossi at Grace Church High School, there have been some parents that have written letters about their concerns. You don't, you don't say, uh, you're not going to give any merit to the idea that that is an example of malpractice. And in any, any field, there's going to be malpractice of the way something is applied or performed in a classroom, and that that's not what it was supposed to happen. You think that was that was that was not malpractice. That was intent, and that the concerns from parents are are fully legitimate. Yeah, I mean, you bring up Paul Rossi and Grace Church. Uh, I think his name is George Davis, and the head of school was caught on tape admitting, and this is very close to a a full quote: "We're demonizing kids. We're demonizing white people for being born." Right. When you have an educator use that kind of language so forthrightly in private, uh, I think it raises a very serious question of, is this really a bug or is this a feature? Let's look forward for a second, because I'd love to think that, that we'll get past this difficult time where everyone's butting heads. Do you think that there's some sort of common ground that can be found so that someone like Dr. Kirkland, who joined us earlier, can feel good about progress being made about uh, you know, again, we've talked about historical racism and how it shapes the racism in structural racism today, which it doesn't seem like you're disagreeing with that basic concept. Do you think that there'll be some common ground eventually where kids can, in school, learn what we, you and I didn't get to learn when we were younger? And, yeah. and you know, a lot of this stuff was whitewashed when we were kids. Yeah, it's it's possible. But I think part of the problem is that there's a, a kind of... Uh, kind of democratic or market failure in sorting when it comes to, to education, right? Um, Dr. Kirtland has kind of pioneered culturally responsive education, uh, which is a kind of related to critical race theory, tries to forefront uh, certain cultural identities in instruction, but not all students share those identities. Um, not all students want to be taught, or not all parents want to be taught the kind of ideas that Dr. Kirtland, Kirtland puts forward, they want to be taught, you know, ideas that reflect their families. And so part of what's going on, I think, is a, a democratic failure of local public schools to reflect the values of their communities. And my hope is that if as more parents get involved and as more parents say, you know, it's we don't want our schools teaching that we want to teaching this, we can have this, we really don't want any of that. When this kind of wave of democratic activism crashes into local government as it should. And as I think kind of local government education has been quiet and sleepy for far too long, then I think we could reach a scenario where, you know, you'll still find things to get outraged on, on both sides, on social media, on Fox, on MSNBC. But I'd like to think that with more democratic accountability and control, also possibly with more school choice, you'll have a situation where this is a concern that parents have in the abstract, but they're actually happy with the way that their students are being taught, their kids are being taught. Max, we're all out of time, but thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We appreciate it. And also a big thanks to everybody for tuning in. Thanks to our production team, Ben Berkowitz, Darren Price, and Melissa Mack. We'll see you right here next time on The Debrief.